So let's get started. If you, if you would, um, you can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get to the first few chapters in a minute. But I want to set the stage first. In the beginning, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, he created people, right? Adam and Eve. The story should be pretty familiar to us by now. We've been going back to it constantly. And he put them in the Garden of Eden. And the best thing about the garden was not its beauty. And it was not that it was a perfect place. It wasn't the abundance of fruit there or the absence of suffering, as great as that was. The best thing about the garden was that it was the place where heaven touched earth. God, the source of life, the source of breath, the source of everything good, the fountain of all beauty, he was there. He walked there with his people in the garden. And God placed Adam in this garden temple to be his priest with his wife Eve to help. There serving him always in his presence, caring for the garden and from the garden going out and filling the earth and ruling it spreading, as they had children, glory images of God throughout the whole world as waters cover the sea. But, as the story goes, our first priest, Adam, lets a snake into the temple. He lets Satan in, and he listens to the word of the snake. He sins, and he rebels against the Lord. He becomes darkened with evil. And as a result, he and his wife are driven from Eden, from the garden, the first temple, the first meeting place between God and man had been defiled by sin. And then death followed closely. And death and darkness, they must flee before the presence of the God who is life and light. And so Adam must leave. Outside the garden, life is terrible. And it always ended in death. Murder was rampant. Evil was out of control, and death was everywhere you looked. Fast forward a few thousand years, and you come to the book of Exodus. God has chosen a people to start over with. Israel, as a nation, was to be like a new Adam, in a special relationship with God. And at the end of Exodus, we saw that God put his portable Garden of Eden directly in the midst of his people. It's called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a beautiful tent with garden imagery, pomegranates all around, and it's designed by God and made by the Israelites. And the purpose is to provide a safe, sacred space where heaven in all its purity can touch earth with all its darkness and evil. And there's a space, an overlap, where the God of life and holiness and beauty can dwell in the midst of his fallen and darkened world without the world being destroyed. Think about the sun. You saw in the video, they use the sun as an illustration. The sun is close to 93 million miles away from the earth. A million, one million miles closer to us, and the earth would be too hot for life. We'd be consumed any further away, and the earth would be too cold. God placed the sun in the exact place that it needed to be to support and sustain life. 
An accident from a big bang? I think not. We live in a finely tuned universe. And the sun is beautiful, and it's good. It gives life. It warms our hearts even. Yesterday, when I woke up and saw the sunrise for the first time in a while, um, my heart was warmed, and I love the sun, right? As I'm writing my sermon, I'm like, this, this is a fitting illustration on a sunny day. And we spent most of the day outside in the sun. But you would not want your sun, the sun in your living room, right? It gushes out radiation. And even though the surface of the sun is the coolest part of the sun, the surface alone is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot enough to incinerate anything. And you'd be consumed instantly, right? Now think about this. The God of the Bible that we worship here at this church, he created the sun. Trillions and trillions of suns, actually. And he created the planets and the moons and the asteroids and black holes and thunderstorms and volcanoes and lightning and hail and wind and thunder, beautiful flowers, towering mountains for all their majesty. He is mighty beyond our wildest dreams. And he is beautiful beyond anything that we can imagine. All creation is shouting, there is a God. And he is greater and more beautiful and more powerful than you can ever dream. There's no words to this song, but it's being sung wherever you look. Creation is telling the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. No one is like him. He is in a category all his own. And we call that category in the Bible, the Bible calls it holy. The angels sing before him day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That means he's so unlike us, and yet he's filled the earth with millions and billions of images, of pictures of what he's like, of his beauty, of his power, of his greatness, of his wisdom, and on and on. He is utterly holy. He is utterly pure. There's no injustice in him. There's no flickering of a lie. Within the fellowship of the Trinity, he is pure love, never changing, never failing. To bring evil into the presence of this God, to bring rebellion before him, it's like bringing darkness into the light of the sun. It disappears instantly. You can't bring darkness into the sunlight, right? Like, how would you do that? The sun immediately eats darkness. Bringing evil into God's presence is like plunging a cardboard box into the heart of the sun. It's instantly consumed, gone in a second, just like the sacrifices issued or offered on Israel's altars. In the words of Moses, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And yet, this God this mighty, holy God who's so fully other from us, he wants to live in the midst of his unholy and sinful and unclean people in the midst of Israel. So how can that happen without him being consumed? Like you say to me, 
I'm going to take the sun and I'm going to put it in my living room. Don't you think it looked nice there against the wall? How would you do that? You can't. How can you dwell? How can God dwell with his sinful people? The answer is the tabernacle. A glory-proof tent, as it were. And at the end of Exodus, chapter 40, verses 34 to 35, Brian pointed this out last week. The glory of God covered the tent of meeting. Remember, this, this cloud symbolizes the presence of God. At the end of Exodus, the glory cloud comes down, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35 of Exodus 40, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here we see that finally, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God's presence has come to fully dwell with mankind. But something is wrong. God's there, but the people cannot be with God. They can't enter the tent. Moses, the man you thought of all of them, would be able to go in. I mean, he ascended Mount Sinai and went into the glory cloud. But now, as uh, Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king when he's in God's presence, and he falls on his face in Isaiah 6. Moses lives among an unclean people. They had just done the calf. We learned about that a few weeks ago. And how can he, who lives among an unclean people, and himself a sinner, enter into the presence of the Lord? He can't. He's outside the tent. Leviticus fixes this problem. Leviticus shows us the way into the presence of the living God. It shows us how sinful humans can become clean and holy and be able to enter into the presence of God without being consumed. In short, a summary, the way into God's presence is through ritual sacrifices made by ordained priests within Israel who are both ceremonially and morally pure in God's sight. So, Simplify it a little bit. God's people can enter his presence through sacrifices, through representation, and through purification. Sacrifices, representation, that would be the priests representing them, and purification, the purity laws. And as you saw in the video, those three things, rituals, priests, and purity laws, they form bookends around Leviticus and around the heart of the book, which is chapter 16 to 17 the great day of atonement. In chapters 1 to 7, we learn about the ritual sacrifices that Israel was to make and how they were to make them. At the end, in chapters 23 to 25, we learn about ritual feasts that Israel was to observe, celebrating their relationship with God. Move a step closer to the middle. In chapters 8 to 10, we learn about the priests, about Aaron and his sons. At the other side of the Day of Atonement, in chapters 21 to 22, we get some guidelines for how the priests are to be holy and stay holy in God's sight. And then, in chapters 11 to 15, we learn about the clean and unclean laws, ritual purity in God's sight, and on the other side of the Day of Atonement, directly touching it, chapters 18 to 20, you get moral purity. And right in the middle, the Day of Atonement, 
So again, next week we're going to focus on the Day of Atonement. What I'd like to do now is summarize the three things we find in Leviticus. So again, there's three steps necessary for God's people to enter into God's presence and to enjoy his presence in their midst. Through sacrifices made by priests who are ceremonially and morally pure in God's sight. Sacrifices, representation, and purification. So let's talk about sacrifices first. In Leviticus 1-7, to if you have your Bible open and you just scan the headings of each passage there, you'll see a number of different offerings talked about. There's six of them total, but only five are really focused on. And each one of those five offerings is talked about twice. So you'll see the same headings two times each. It's from two different perspectives. And first, there's the burnt offerings, then grain offerings, then fellowship, or your Bible might have peace offerings, then sin offerings and guilt offerings. And a final one mentioned in those chapters is the ordination offerings, and it's made when a priest would be installed to his office. Like imagine when I was ordained a few years ago, like we brought a, a calf up and slit its throat and made a sacrifice. Yeah, we, we don't do that anymore. But that was a one-time offering when the priests were installed, the ordination offerings, and we read about them in these chapters. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at the end of Leviticus 7, the end of chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. Here's the summary of the sacrifices. These, then, are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. Now, all of these sacrifices, they're basically ways of either saying thank you to God and expressing our devotion to him and a desire to be in relationship with him or their ways of saying sorry to the Lord for our sin. When a worshiper would make a sacrifice, like a, a burnt offering, for example, he or she would press their hand down on the head of the animal. That's in Leviticus 1 verse 4. And they're basically identifying with the animal, saying this sheep or goat or cow, this represents me and my desire to be with God. The animal had to be pure and spotless, no blemishes, because it symbolized the only way that humans can be in God's presence. They have to be pure and blameless and clean. And then, they, after identifying with that animal, they would take its life and then they would take fire from the altar of the Lord and they would burn the animal. And the fire represented the Lord's presence and it would consume the whole animal before the Lord. And as the animal turned to smoke, it would ascend upwards to the Lord, joining the glory cloud, mingling with the cloud, and symbolizing that the, the worshiper was ascending to be with God. The worshiper has identified with the lamb I want to be pure and blameless like this lamb. And then as the lamb ascends, the way into God's presence is by being pure. The animal would be with God on the person's behalf, showing the desire 
of the Israelite person to be with God and to be pure and blameless in God's sight. And that's why it would say the smell was a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord. As the whole animal was offered, it would, deli- it would symbolize the worshiper's desire for their whole self to be in relationship with God. As you consume this whole animal, Lord, pure and blameless, so I want to be pure and blameless, and so I want all of me to be for you. That's what's being symbolized in this burnt offering. And as the animal had to be killed, it symbolized a giving of one's very life to the Lord. God owns me. I give my life to be with him, pure and blameless. Other offerings, like the sin and guilt offering, they symbolized the penalty that sin deserved, which was death. The animal would die in the place of the human who had sinned and so make atonement for the person's sin. The animal would, again, they're identifying with the animal, and the animal would bear the person's sins, as it were, dying in their place, taking the punishment that they deserved. In the case of a sin offering... The priests who made it on behalf of the Israelite, who did the work, they would actually be allowed to eat it afterwards, showing that fellowship with God follows forgiveness from sin. After they're forgiven, they eat and drink with God. So again, sacrifices are ways of saying, I want a relationship with you, God, and I'm sorry for my sin. The way into the presence of God was through sacrifice. And they couldn't just be made by any Israelite anywhere. No, they had to be made at the temple by priests. And that leads to the second section of Leviticus that we're going to focus on. The representation of Aaron and his sons. So the job of the priests was to represent God to the people of Israel and represent the people before God. They were to be descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, and they were to be pure and blameless in God's sight. We'll learn how in the purity laws in a few minutes. But in Leviticus 8 to 10, we read the story of how the priesthood was formed. In chapter 8, there's a seven-day-long ceremony in which Aaron and his sons, they make sacrifices to the Lord. The blood of the sacrifices is sprinkled on them to purify them from their sin and their uncleanness, showing that the pure, spotless life of the animal, symbolized by its blood, covers over the dirty life of this priest. Life covers life and makes them pure in God's sight. That's what's being symbolized here. And they end this ceremony in Leviticus 8 by eating the meat of the sacrifices. Again, symbolizing fellowship with God made possible by the spotless animal who represents them. In chapter 9, the priests officially start their ministry on behalf of the people. They offer sacrifices for the people and they draw near to the Lord on the people's behalf. Listen to verses 22 and to 24 of chapter 9, if you would. This is the the climax of the story of the Exodus here and the resolution to the problem mentioned at the end of Exodus. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. Did you catch that? They went in. Problem solved. 
The sacrifices were offered on the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, and now they're entering into the tabernacle itself, into the holy place, the second tier of the tabernacle. They're not to go into the holy of holies yet. We learn about that in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. So they're going in, and when they came back out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people in verse 23, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. This is the highest point in Leviticus, right? They're celebrating. God has come, and now we can actually meet with him. All is going to be rosy, right? Wrong. We come to the tragedy of Leviticus chapter 10. All of a sudden, in the midst of this replica of the Garden of Eden, of this picture, it's supposed to be a picture within the dark world of what new creation should look like. And as you enter into new creation, you've got to be pure and blameless, and there's all these steps to take, right? This in this little small-scale model of God's new creation in his garden, we all of a sudden have death. Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Aaron's sons, the sons of the priest, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, they're like fire holders, and they put fire in them, and they added incense, sweet-smelling stuff, and they offered unauthorized, that means not commanded, fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said, then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Now, I don't have time to go through all the arguments for this. There's four of them. But it seems like from the text, Nadab and Abihu, what they did was they got drunk and they went into the Holy of Holies, offering unauthorized fire. Immediately after this sin in verses 8 to 10, we read that the priests aren't to get drunk. Why? Well, maybe it's because that's what these guys did. And the second thing is Leviticus 16, verse 12. In chapter 16, the Day of Atonement chapter, we read the only other place where people are to take a censer into the Holy of Holies. Censers aren't talked about elsewhere. So it seems like Nadab and Abihu, they, they, they jumped the gun. They all right, we're in the holy of holies, or we're in the holy place. Let's go. Let's go in. All the way in. And they do it unsummoned and unprepared. And they bring death into God's world. They pray, pay the ultimate price for their rebellion. It's serious business. God's not to be trifled with. Sinful humans, we can't just waltz into God's presence and expect that our impurity and our uncleanness in his sight will go unpunished. So what follows this huge error is Leviticus 11 to 15. 
a whole host of rules and regulations intended to help the Israelites and their priests remain clean in God's sight. And it leads to the third main point today from Leviticus. Remember, we've looked at sacrifices, we've looked at representatives, and now we're looking at purification. If God's people hope to enjoy his presence in their midst, they've got to remain pure in his sight. Now, here things can get a little bit complicated, okay, because there's two types of impurity. There's ritual impurity, and there's moral impurity and uncleanness. Leviticus 11 to 15 deals with the first type of uncleanness, the ritual purity, and Leviticus chapter 18 to 20 talks about moral purity. In chapters 11, and 15, 11 to 15, we read, for example, about the food laws for Israel. Certain foods are in the daily rituals of their life. A ritual is something you do regularly, right? And, and these foods are unclean. They're not supposed to be touched by them. And if they touch them, they render the Israelite in a state of uncleanness and unfit to enjoy God's presence, at least until they've gone through proper steps to purify themselves from the uncleanness. We also learn about how to be purified from blood loss after childbirth and how to be purified from unclean skin conditions. The loss of blood would have been associated with death, as well as the loss of other life fluids that we won't get into. Basically, here's what you need to know about the clean and unclean laws. We live in a broken world. A world that's been defiled by death and bloodshed and sickness and disease and decay and suffering. And these things don't belong in God's good world. Believe me, you don't want those things in the new creation. And so, they have no, they, it should make sense that these things would have no place in the small-scale model of the new creation, of the, of the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle. So, if you touched somebody who died, for example, you would become unclean, at least for a time, and you had to be purified by a prescribed set of purification commands. Being unclean wasn't a sinful thing. I mean, somebody's got to bury your, your, your parent that has passed away, but it would render you unclean for a season because you touched death. And death is bad. Death doesn't belong in God's world. And so you would be unclean and you would have to wash and, and wait a little period of time. And what would, be what would be sinful would be, I just got unclean and now I'm going to go see God. That is when it becomes sin. When you basically say something flowing from the curse like death or sickness this belongs in the new creation. That's what it would basically be saying if you walked into the tabernacle. Yeah, we're okay with death, and it belongs in here, where Nadab and Abihu died. That's what the, these unclean and clean laws are all about. Now, there's always a lot of speculation about the food laws, and I've thought a lot about the food laws. I read an article in, in seminary that I found really helpful, and... And so I'll just commend this to you as maybe this is what's going on, okay? You ever read, like, why this one and that one, or not that one? What's going on here? Anything associated with death is unclean. 
That's pretty clear. Animals that eat dead things, like vultures, buzzards, they're unclean. Anything associated with reptiles, like a snake who deceived Adam and Eve. And anything associated with the dust of the ground that was cursed by God in Genesis 3 is also unclean. So, animals with cloven feet, feet that don't touch the dust of the ground where the snake is cursed to crawl on his belly eating dust. Anything that doesn't touch the dust is, is clean. Anything that has a, a cloven hoof. Except for the pig, because pigs are carnivorous and associated with death. They also, if you've ever seen a pig, I've seen them do this to our neighbor's nice manicured yard, they thrust their snout down in the dust and they just plow it up. They're quite associated with dust and dirt and decay and death. They're unclean. Anything that chews the cud is, for the most part, clean because it's not associated with death. It's an herbivore. Insects, like creepy crawly insects crawling around the dust of the ground, those, like the snakes, are unclean. But insects that fly and hop, like a locust, those are clean. Again, everything associated in any way with the Genesis 3 curse of the ground and with death and with the devil, that's unclean for the Israelites. So to eat something unclean was to break God's law to become unholy in God's sight. And in Leviticus 11, 43 to 45, God says this, Do not defile yourself by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I, the Lord your God, cons con I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. That phrase is picked up in the New Testament. Be holy for I am holy. Be separate from anything that smells of death and clings and cling with all your souls to the God of life. That's, I believe, what's at the heart of the food laws and all the other laws in here. We no longer need these though. Why? Because Jesus has defeated the devil. He has reversed death and he has reversed the curse on the ground. He makes his, as a, one of my favorite songs um, goes, he makes his blessings known as far as the curse is found. Jesus declares all foods clean now. And so as the article that really helped me said, bacon is victory food. You wonder why I like bacon? Because it smells like resurrection, okay? Bacon means the pig isn't unclean anymore because Jesus has transformed this cursed world and new creation is breaking in. So, gotta get bacon in there somewhere. <laughs> to sum up all the clean and unclean stuff, again, I wanna, I wanna quote a scholar who I found super helpful in studying Leviticus. I don't quote people often, but I found this guy really helpful. His name is Michael Morales. He says this, the main purpose of the clean and unclean laws is to teach Israel to abstain from the dirtiness of sin. That uncleanness 
came into the world because of sin. In other words, you wouldn't have death and sickness and decay if you didn't have sin. And so teach, the unclean laws teach Israel to abstain from the dirtiness of sin. Uncleanness represents the pollution of sin. Contact with a carcass results in uncleanness. Therefore, not because such contact is in itself a sin, but because death and mortality are the result of sin. Physical imperfection, disruptions, deformities, and maladies, though not considered sinful, nevertheless, they reflect sin's damage and pollution of the earth, and therefore they require a ritual cleansing. So as we turn now from Leviticus 15 to Leviticus 16 and 17, the focus of the passage shifts to the sobering reality that Israel as a nation is actually unclean all the time because they sin all the time. And so once a year, Aaron, or whoever the high priest is for that year, is to enter into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and to make atonement for the sins of the whole nation. And then Leviticus 17, it details the significance of blood and why the blood of the animals was so important for making sacrifices. Basically, it symbolized life. We've already kind of talked about that, but when blood is shed in someone's place, it symbolizes that the spotless life of the lamb is taking the place of the sinful human in God's sight. All of this, of course, jumping ahead, points to Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world by his spotless life. We're going to really focus on that next week. But for now, I'll just quickly finish our overview of Leviticus. Remember the structure? Ritual sacrifices, 1 to 7. The priesthood, 8 to 10. Purity laws, 11 to 15. Day of atonement, and importance of, the, of blood at the heart of the book. And then on the other side, you get similar topics in reverse order. In chapter 18 to 20, you get moral purity laws. In chapters 21 to 22, more information about the priesthood. Finally, chapters 23 to 25, we learn about seven different feasts and holiday ceremonies that Israel was to observe regularly or ritually as a nation. And those feasts and those ceremonies, they were, they're just like the sacrifices in that they help Israel in the regular rhythm of their lives to keep the Lord at the front of their at the forefront of their hearts. A ritual, right, something you do on a regular basis, like brushing your teeth, it's good for you. Israel's rituals were spelled out ways of worshiping the Lord in the day-to-day -day grind of life. Sacrifice and feasting to the Lord, they're woven through all of life, if life was to be lived to the glory of God. One application as a New Covenant Christian could be this. What rituals of worship have you woven through your life? Focusing your heart daily on the Lord through sacrifice, not of animals, but of a heart that says, I'm all for you, Lord Jesus. I seek you in prayer. I want to hear from your word on a regular basis. I want to give you a sacrifice of praise. I want to meet with your family in fellowship. I want to celebrate your resurrection like never before on Easter and all the different... Rituals, we, they're not mandated in the same way as they were 
in the Old Covenant. But weaving worship into life was what this is all about. To be an Israelite was to be a worshiper of the one true God. It was supposed to be. And now, as we close, remember, we've seen again and again, the holy God of the Bible, he wants to be with people, in the midst of people. He wants to dwell among us, in relationship with us, but he cannot. Not because he's unloving, but because we are unholy. And his eyes are too pure to look upon evil and darkness. But there is a way back into his presence. And Leviticus shows us the way. The way back into God's presence is through a sacrifice made for us by a priest who is pure in God's sight. And when we turn the pages to the New Testament, that is exactly what we get. We get Jesus, the very Son of God, who embodies the very presence of God in our midst. Jesus is like the tabernacle of old. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle says that Jesus, God's very word, became flesh. He took on a body and literally tabernacled, tented among us. And we beheld his glory. This is straight from Exodus. It's straight from Leviticus. The tabernacle is finished and glory comes down. The word of God is born of a woman and tents among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' body is like a tabernacle for the glory of God, housing the glory so that we can see it and not be consumed. And then there's three things that I want to end with as we, we focus in on what Jesus has done for us. As our tabernacle, Jesus, he didn't need to offer spotless and pure lambs to God to re represent him in God's sight. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses 18 and 19, the apostle says, We were redeemed by God with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was and is the only human who has ever lived who didn't need a spotless lamb to represent him before God. He was blameless. He never sinned. He never had a single impure thought or deed ever. And as we'll spend a good deal of time talking about next week. Jesus offered himself as the spotless lamb when he died on the cross for our sins in our place. He's the only human ever born that could have done that. And Jesus alone has all the, only the holy, is the only one who has the holiness that God requires for acceptance before the Lord. Second, Jesus didn't need a, a priest to represent him before God. Jesus was and is the final priest. Jesus had the power and the authority and the purity to represent us before God as our great high priest and as our sacrifice. And as our priest, third, Jesus has cleansed us from all impurity. Our high priest, he is our sacrifice and he has cleansed us from sin. He's made us holy in God's sight. He alone is qualified to enter into God's presence, not the tabernacle on earth, but the heavens of heaven, the very 
the very throne room of God itself that the tabernacle was just an earthly copy of. Jesus went to the, ascended into the real thing, the real presence of God. That the tabernacle, as the author of Hebrews will see in a second, said was just a shadow. So I'm going to close by reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. And then with a final comment. So Hebrews 10, you can turn there if you want. The author of Hebrews is all over the book of Leviticus and Exodus. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 10, verse 1. The law, that would be a reference to Leviticus that we're reading. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So the priests, shadows. The ceremonies, shadows. The tabernacle, a shadow. What is a shadow? It's not the real thing. It's a shadow of you, but it's not you. The tabernacle, all shadows of what's coming. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Other words, they would, they, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, so it, it was just a picture looking forward to when Christ came, right? It, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every high priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Did you catch that? One sacrifice, Jesus' death on the cross, he made you holy. He died as a lamb in your, your place, consumed like a burnt offering so that you and I would be declared clean in God's sight. Have you ever felt dirty about anything? Have you ever felt any shame or guilt? Shameful about your sin, about your failures, about things you just wish you could change about yourself and you tried and tried and you just can't. Look to Jesus. Look to the Lamb of God who covers shame and guilt. 
He makes the unclean clean. Think of his earthly ministry. Sickness fled from his presence. The unclean lepers were made clean at his touch. Under the law, touching the dead would have made Jesus unclean and unfit to go into God's presence. But Jesus reverses everything. When Jesus touches a dead person, the dead person catches life. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The dead person gets resurrected. And all the uncleanness that Jesus dealt with in his life, touching sick, diseased, decayed, dead people, all of it was just pointing towards Jesus' greatest work of cleaning sin out of human hearts. Jesus has come. He has died. And he has rose again for you and I that we might be cleansed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have made a way for us to go into God's presence. I thank you that you are the tabernacle, that you are the place that we meet God. Lord Jesus, may we keep you at the center of our hearts by your spirit. I thank you that you're a perfect sacrifice. I thank you that our great, you're our great high priest, always praying for us, always interceding on our behalf before the throne of grace. And so I ask, Lord, that you would be with us. If there's anybody here who's just struggling to grasp what you've done for us, I pray that you would help them to feel the warmth of your love and know that you have the power to make the unclean clean through faith. So help us to believe, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.